0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire? Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase Forward, by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details and one small Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of entry in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everyone. Well, I've got a Christmas story for you, Steve, but it's not going to leave you with warm and fuzzy feelings. If you want that, go back to our episode from last year called The First Christmas Tree. You That's remember one. that yes, one? I like absolutely. that one. Yeah, but tonight we have a very sad tale of The Girl in Blue. Oh, we did Little Boy Blue. This is. Yeah, Little Boy Blue. This one is The Girl in Blue. Okay. We're going to go back to 1933 with this one. And it's a blustery Christmas Eve in Willoughby, Ohio, a city near the Lake Erie shore. There's a young woman walking near the train station. She's wearing a dark blue topcoat over a navy blue skirt, a light blue sweater, and a dark blue turban hat. Her white chiffon scarf is blue flowers. Even her shoes are blue. No one knows her as she walks alone through downtown and last-minute shoppers, but they're going to. Our girl in blue seems to be down on her luck. A few days before Christmas, she was in Kirtland, Ohio, where she'd been kicked off a streetcar after failing to pay her fare. The day after that, she was in Cleveland at the Greyhound bus station. She talked to someone there, mentioned something about having come from Detroit and being on her way to Erie, Pennsylvania for the holidays. Then she asked the ticket office what the fares were for Erie, Pennsylvania and Elmira, New York. It's not clear if she was disappointed with the answer, but she did end up buying a cheaper ticket to Willoughby, Ohio. Willoughby was 85 miles from Erie. It was at least in the right direction. On the late-night bus to Willoughby, our young woman met a gentleman who recommended she head for a boarding house on 3rd Street in the downtown Willoughby area. It was owned by Mrs. Mary Judd. She must have been relieved to have an acquaintance to refer her because it was after midnight when the bus arrived and the girl finished walking from the bus stop to the boarding house and knocked on the door. Mrs. Judd gave her a room and she disappeared behind the closed door, presumably to sleep. In the morning, our girl, dressed in blue from head to foot, woke early. She sat in the shared living space of the house doing a little reading then joined the table after it was set for breakfast. Mrs. Judd recalled she asked about finding a local church, then disappeared after breakfast for about an hour. When the young lady returned, she looked a bit worried, or perhaps just weary. She went straight to her room, then returned downstairs carrying her suitcase. She thanked Mrs. Judd for her help, returned the key to her room, paid for her stay, then left. The last words anyone heard her spoke were Merry Christmas. The young woman was seen one block south of the boarding house heading along a street past the cemetery. When she reached the end of the street, she came to a stand of maple trees. Witnesses said it was there she stepped into the woods onto a dirt path. The path went through the woods, and the girl emerged on the other side near the railroad tracks just in time to see an eastbound locomotive traveling at about 60 miles per hour. It was the New York Central Passenger Train. There were other people about. They said it seemed as if the girl intentionally dropped her suitcase and sprinted toward the tracks. She ran into the broadside of the train. The glancing blow sent her hurtling in the air and landing in some gravel, instantly dead from the impact. Authorities collected the body which strangely showed no signs of trauma. There was no blood, no visible wound. They found her purse. There were coins, a total of 90 cents in all, a handkerchief, a few trinkets a woman might carry, and a ticket to Cory, Pennsylvania. Her suitcase was found where she dropped it. It was almost empty, just a towel and some sharpened pencils and envelopes, but no clue to her identity. The body was taken to a local funeral home operated by James McMahon. He examined the body and determined her death was the result of a fractured skull. He guessed her age to be about 23. She was 5 feet 4 inches, 135 pounds, reddish-brown hair and hazel eyes. Her teeth were straight and she had high cheekbones and her face vaguely suggested to McMahon that she had been born to foreign parents. McMahon kept her body laid out for two weeks, giving time for people to travel from afar to see if the dead girl was their missing daughter or sister or wife. More than 3,000 people came for a look, but no one recognized her. Unable to find next of kin, she was finally laid to rest. A local resident donated a burial plot in the village cemetery located in the center of town on Sharp Road, the same cemetery she had walked past on her way to the tracks. The McMahon Funeral Home took care of her funeral arrangements. And Hank Heverly, the cemetery sexton, collected donations for a headstone. The cemetery selected a beautifully etched three-foot-high granite marker that read simply, In memory of the girl in blue, killed by train, December 24, 1933, unknown but not forgotten. An additional $15 was put into a city fund to ensure that geraniums would be placed on the grave once a year. In 1966... Heverly told a reporter at the News Herald about a strange encounter he'd had in 1938 that was five years after the girl in blue was buried. He said he was working in the cemetery when a young man driving a new Dodge pulled up and said he wanted to see his sister's grave. Heverly said the man was the spitting image of the girl in the grave, and then he showed the man a picture of the girl in blue that had been taken at the morgue. It's her, the stranger said. As they walked to the grave together, the man said he and his 22-year-old sister Sophie had left their parents' home in Quarry, Pennsylvania during the early years of the Depression, hoping to find employment in Detroit. They couldn't find work, but the man said he scraped up enough money for train fare for Sophie to return home. Then the man gave Heverly $2 and asked him to put some flowers on his sister's grave before driving off. Heverly said he remembered the stranger had given a last name that sounded something like Klingspar, Klinspack, or Kincove. He couldn't remember, apparently hadn't even thought to write it down. For the next 60 years, the townsfolk continued to care for the girl who some now believed to be Sophie of the mysterious last name. They often left her silk flowers or small tokens. And then in 1993... A chain of events revealed her real identity. The News Herald wrote yet another anniversary feature story about the girl in blue, and the mention of Cory, Pennsylvania led that town's newspaper to pick up the story. There, local real estate agent Ed Sekarak, who was selling the Klimchak family farm in Spring Creek at the time, thought the girl might belong to the Klimchaks. After digging through court records, He found enough evidence to suggest she was. Though she went by the name Sophie, her birth name was Josephine Klimchak. She was 22. And so in 2002, Kotecki Monuments of Cleveland donated an additional footstone to that cemetery marker with her name on it. According to the website Find a Grave, Sophie was the daughter of Jacob and Catherine Klimchak, immigrants from Poland, who both died in 1935. That was just two years after Sophie's death. Her father died that June at the age of 65. Her mom died that December 23, two days before Christmas. Sophie's brother was John. He appears to have remained in Michigan and died at the age of 71 in the year 1972. There's so much we still don't know. Why wasn't Sophie using the train ticket she had for Quarry, Pennsylvania? Why did she decide to stop in Willoughby? Did she commit suicide? She certainly seemed alone in the world trying to find her way to somewhere on a holiday when her sad story stood out in stark relief to the happy holiday revelers. Indeed, Lake County Coroner O. O. Hosh ruled her death a suicide. That was only after he changed it. It originally listed it as an accident. Could it be she was racing to catch the train? She didn't throw herself in front of the train. She glanced off its side. Given that she had already demonstrated her inability to pay for a fare, in spite of that Quarry Pennsylvania ticket she had, she clearly wasn't using it yet. It seems possible she might have been trying to hitch a free ride. Either way... She is part of Willoughby's history now, a permanent resident of the town. The cemetery caretaker says every time he walks through the grounds, he finds dimes and pennies that have been left on the grave that sits under the cemetery's only mulberry tree. The coins continue to buy flowers for Sophie's final resting place. That's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. And may all of your mysteries have happy endings.